Radio Mano Papachango. Hey Chris, Nick here. I was just listening to episode 536, Aroma, and you're responding to a question by a young guy named Cole about um, like how to kind of recognize beauty in a woman and, and not just get so focused on the physical aspects, physical beauty of a woman. And I'm, I'm 33 and I, I kind of remember going through something similar in my early 20s um, and something really changed for me when I what I started noticing is that I would meet women in my life and my initial thought about them was like oh she's not that attractive she's not that physically attractive to me and then I would notice after spending some time with some of these women that something clicked and it's like I would start seeing them as very physically attractive and what I think was happening for me was that because I was getting to know them on a deeper level I was projecting that deeper level of attraction onto the physical plane and that kind of then became a um, like almost like a barometer for me when I was meeting women is it like is my first thought when I'm meeting somebody, oh, she's gorgeous, because then, okay, maybe I'm going to fall into a trap and I'm going to sort of justify spending time with her because she's physically beautiful. Whereas if my initial thought was like, oh, I'm not that attracted to her, but then, and I notice that, and then that flips at some point and I start thinking she's physically attractive, then I'm then that's a sign to look and say, oh, like, okay, maybe maybe there's actually something here. Maybe I should spend more time with this person maybe maybe we have something uh so that was my experience with that thanks nick that experience is wise i think and um it's an experience i wish i was gonna say i wish i knew about earlier in life but maybe i did it's hard to remember sometimes what i learned and when and all that stuff. I, um, but definitely there was a time in my life where I was a lot more keyed into these questions of physical beauty than I am now. And um, I have a friend who's very aesthetically inclined. He's um, he's an artist and, and he surrounds himself with beauty and his house is beautiful and his just everything is beautiful the way things are arranged and the colors and just he, he pays a lot of attention to this stuff and we were talking one time about beauty and I was trying to say to him without being aggressive I was trying to say that I worry sometimes that his attunement to visual beauty blinds him to non-visual 
sorts of beauty, which isn't totally fair because he's highly attuned to music as well, which is non-visible, uh, non-visual, obviously. Um, but sometimes it feels like, you know, like there are people who eat with their eyes, right? And And it's like, the food, the presentation of the food on the plate outweighs the actual flavor. It's almost like the way it's presented visually maybe enhances the flavor, which I guess is the intention. Um, but I feel like sometimes people get so distracted by the presentation that they don't actually taste it, much less think about nutritional value and you know how this is nourishing their body and where the food came from and how the plants and animals were affected and you know all those sorts of considerations um and I feel like we all do that and I think we do it with each other much more and so I think Nick's point that you know when you meet someone and it's like wow this person's attractive like uh, you're more likely to get caught in a trap because you're more likely to be ordering you know from one of those menus with pictures at the Chinese restaurant and not really thinking about what you're getting it's just like wow that looks good that's a good photo of this food and as we know from food photography most of the stuff that you see in commercials is not even real food. It might be covered with motor oil that looks like chocolate sauce or it's sprayed with hairspray to make it the fruit, you know, shine or whatever. Like it's not even edible what you're looking at. And so a lot of times I think we do that with each other where we're we're so focused on the attraction that we're not thinking about the other things and that and of course, that's the worst possible reason to get into a relationship with someone, right? Just because you want to fuck them. Like, oh my God, that's that should be, you know, number 19 or 20 on the list of things that is important. Now, it is important, and this is coming, you know, from the guy who wrote Sex at Dawn together with Casilda. Like, it is important. Of course it's important. But it's not of primary importance, and it can be so distracting. And I think this is a, this is a key thing that a lot of men don't understand about women. Because women are not as visually compelled, women aren't thinking about men the way men are thinking about women, at least young men. And so men get confused and they think, okay, I'm obsessed on women's bodies and, you know, how they look, how hot they are. So women must be thinking the same way. So I'm going to obsess on my, my muscles and my six pack and my this and my that. And a lot of women look at those guys and they think it's kind of pathetic because they can see that the men are designing their lives around trying to appeal to women, which is which is sad in two ways. First of all, it's sad because you shouldn't design your life around other people's expectations or judgments, right? You design your life around your own expectations, your own judgment, your own sense of integrity and, and what matters to you. 
But it's also pathetic because it's based upon a misunderstanding of how women think. Oscar Wilde said many famous things, but one of my favorites is he said that men learn to love women they're attracted to and women learn to be attracted to men they love. Generally, women are judging men on things far more subtle and profound than how big their biceps are or their six-pack or, you know, their hair or whatever the fuck it is. And so men who waste their time trying to maximize factors that women aren't even all that interested in at the expense of the factors that women actually are interested in, integrity, decency, kindness, generosity, maturity, sense of humor. These guys are ridiculous to most women. And so that's why I react I just shake my head and feel bad for for guys who are in these cults of bullshit masculinity that's all around stuff that men find compelling, but women don't. I mean, if you're gay, fine, then appeal to men. But if you're not gay, then think about what it is that women find attractive. And it's not what you think if you're just like taking your male perspective and pivoting it and thinking women are the same, just the mirror image of it. That's not how it works. So I think Nick's advice is very good, although he doesn't present it as advice, but an insight where you meet someone and whatever, you don't, you don't immediately feel that physical hunger, but then as you get to know them, the hunger builds, the attraction builds, the desire builds. That's good because that means you're actually attracted to the person and not the image of them. And the thing about women is hot women know they're hot, right? Women are very good at assessing where they stand on that particular spectrum. And they're not interested for the most part in guys who respond to their hotness because they think it's pathetic. Because they think that guy is so shallow that what he's responding to is this tight top or these shorts and these legs or whatever. Which, fine, they want to be desired. They want to be attractive. They want people to notice them. But when it comes to being interested in a man... They're generally interested in men who see beyond those things, who appreciate them. It's cool. You're hot. You're beautiful. It's nice to look at you. But that's not why I'm here. That's my advice, my insight on this. Now, this is a special episode recorded a while ago. Um, Anya and I were vanning around and we stopped at Stanley Krippner's place north of San Francisco and we were visiting with him and uh, asked him if he would be down to record a podcast. And he said he would, but the problem is he had trouble hearing. And his hearing aid, I don't remember if his battery was dead or there was some problem with his hearing aid. So he couldn't really hear us very well. So 
he suggested that we write down questions like on cue cards, basically on typing paper. And then he read the questions and answered them. I recorded it with my phone. We didn't have the whole microphone set up. So the recording quality is not a hundred percent, but it's, it's pretty good. Um, and you'll hear us sort of, you know, shuffling papers around and, um, speaking with him and he, he can hear us kind of, but he couldn't really follow the questions. So that's why we wrote them down. Um, but it's, pretty interesting conversation uh, or, or monologue if it's not a conversation uh, of Stanley answering our questions and, and giving his thoughts on things like um, you know the paranormal uh, reincarnation things he's learned in life at the time we recorded this he was 89 and the reason I'm releasing it now is that he just turned 90 yesterday so this is sort of a celebration of Stanley Krippner and my 20 year relationship with him, uh, which has gone from mentorship to friendship to something close to family. I think at this point, um, he's a very special guy. For those of you who don't know who he is, uh, you can Google him and read all about him. He's published hundreds of scientific papers dozens of books, um, most of them co-authored because Stanley has always been very, he's kind of like Joe Rogan in a way that he's very interested in giving other people a leg up and helping them get published, get started, get going. Um, the way Joe is with comedians and podcasters and all that, he likes to sort of give people a boost Stanley's the same way. The first thing I ever had published was thanks to him. Probably the first 10 things I ever had published were thanks to Stanley. Um, I co-authored some scientific papers with him and he hooked me up doing some book reviews for scientific journals. And uh, when I was a graduate student and sort of got me used to getting published and seeing my name in print and, and not freaking out about that. And he also was responsible for, you know, putting me on stage in front of hundreds of people giving scientific talks. I guess I can tell this story now. It's statute of limitations probably has run out. But at one point I was living in Barcelona and Stanley, uh, I was in, obviously in grad school and Stanley was a professor at Saybrook University where I went to graduate school. And, um, Stanley used to invite me on trips all over the world. And basically he was invited to speak at some conference or give a seminar somewhere or something. And he would say, well, I could do it. Um, but, uh, I would need to bring my assistant. And so we'd need a room for him and, you know, board and lodging and all this stuff. And they'd always say yes. And so he would use his frequent flyer miles, which he had many of because he was always traveling um, to pay for my ticket. And then he and I would go together to these conferences. And, um, sometimes I would just go as his assistant, you know, carry his bag and check him in and make sure sort of bodyguard because in some places he's very famous and everybody wants him to sign this and read this and do that and all that. Um, so I'd have to sort of be like, yeah, Dr. Krippner needs to, you know, go prepare and sleep and whatever. And I would sort of run interference for him. But uh, Stanley and I traveled, let me see, over the years, Brazil, Argentina, Venezuela, 
Germany, India, Morocco, Spain, Portugal. Hmm, probably some more I'm forgetting. Um, but lots of lots of places, lots of interesting conferences generally around shamanism or parapsychology or something like that. Anyway, there was a, a conference in Argentina that he was going to about psychoneuroimmunology, which is basically the study of how the mind and mental states affect our immunological response. So if you're stressed, most people know that your immune system is weakened by that. So that's a finding from psychoneuroimmunology. Um, and this was 20, well, maybe 20 years ago, maybe 15, something like that. So I'm a grad student and Stanley invites me to come to this conference in Buenos Aires. And I say, sure. Yeah. I'd love to check out Buenos Aires. So, um, I fly from Barcelona. He's flying from San Francisco and we meet in Miami and we get on this flight to Buenos Aires and we're sitting together and Stanley says, oh, by the way, you're going to be speaking at this conference. I said, what? He said, yeah, I, one of the speakers couldn't make it at the last minute and they contacted me and uh, asked me if I could recommend anyone. And I said, well, um, Dr. Christopher Ryan, of course, uh, my assistant will be coming and he could, he's an expert in alternative cancer treatments. And I said, what? He said, yeah, I told them, cause you know, you, you were talking to me about hypnosis and blah, 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 whatever something, or I'd written a paper on it recently or something. <laughs> it's like, are you fucking kidding me? First of all, Dr. Christopher Ryan, I'm a, I'm a grad student. I don't even think I had my master's degree at that point. And secondly, I'm no expert on this. And he said, oh yeah. And I told them you could give the talk in Spanish because you're fluent in Spanish. And my, <laughs> my Spanish was never, and, and it still isn't what I would call great. Uh, it's sort of middling, uh, and at its best, I still made lots of grammatical mistakes. Anyway, so I think, okay, this is no big deal because this is probably like the thing we did in Brazil or whatever, where it's like 30 people sitting in a room, you know, cross-legged on the floor, a bunch of hippies, and then they're going to draw mandalas and whatever. And I can, I can like put together 20 minutes and, and it'll be fine. We land and they pick us up and they say, first of all, before we go to the hotel, we'd like to show you where uh, you'll be giving your talks, your presentations. And it's a two day thing. And they tell us the first day will be just for medical professionals. And they take us to this auditorium and it's massive. It's probably 2000 seats. And they say the first day will just be medical professionals. And we sold about 750 tickets. And the next day is open to the public and it's sold out. And I'm thinking, are you fucking kidding me? How am I going to, how am I going to talk to 2000 people? And that's 750 doctors the day before. I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. I'm a total fraud. This is ridiculous. And then they take us to the hotel and the hotel is this crazy scene. All these people in front of the hotel screaming, all these young people. And it turned out it was because some 
Latin American singer was staying there. And so all the groupies were in front of the hotel yelling and screaming like Luis Miguel or somebody like that. I, I don't remember. So that was a whole mob scene. And I remember in the elevator going up to our rooms after we checked in. And I said to Stanley, like, Stanley, I can't, I can't do this. I can't give a talk in Spanish that I haven't prepared in, you know, tomorrow to 750 doctors. And it was one of the only times I ever saw Stanley, like, really get firm with me. And he just said, well, you better get it together because you're doing it. And I was like, fuck, he's right. I got to do this. So I prepared something and I went up the next day on stage and it was me and Stanley and like three other people on stage. And one of the guys like was with the founder of psychoneuroimmunology and like someone who was up for a Nobel prize. I just felt so, so fraudulent, but I gave the talk and it seemed to go well. And then the next day I gave the talk to 2000 people and it went really well and I have never let go of that memory because any time I've given a public talk since then and I get nervous, I remember Argentina. And I just remember like, hey, first of all, I'm giving a talk about something I know about, right? Because I'm talking about prehistory and sexuality and all that. Secondly, I'm doing it in English, not in Spanish. So whether it's TED or it's a TV interview or whatever it is, this shit's easy compared to that. Yeah. So anyway, that's one of my Stanley stories, one of many. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Stanley Krippner, certainly one of the most extraordinary people I've ever met. Probably one of the most extraordinary people who's lived, um, first time he ever tripped was with Timothy Leary, I believe. <laughs> I mean, he, he hung out with Aldous Huxley. Uh, Alan Watts was a good friend of his. Uh, he was sort of the in-house psychologist to the Grateful Dead. He's been friends with Mickey Hart for 50 years um, since he hypnotized him to help him become a better percussionist. Uh, yeah, the stories go on and on and on. And in any case, I'm honored to know this guy. And uh, it's amazing that he's been on this planet for 90 years. And you'll hear he's sharp and funny and full of insight. So I hope this conversation will be useful to you. I'm going to play you into it with a freaky little piece of music from the KLF Chill Out. And the song is called A Melody from a Past Life Keeps Pulling Me Back. Thought it was appropriate for the subject matter. Thank you for listening, everybody. I hope you're doing well. Sending love out to everybody. Catch you soon.
Deja Vu is the subjective feeling that I have done the same thing I'm doing now before. And there are several explanations for Deja Vu. The one that is the most esoteric is I did this in a past life. But there are more common sense explanations. One is the simple fact of human attention. Our mind wanders much more frequently than people think. There is a whole neurological system called the secondary feedback system that accounts for daydreaming, mind wandering, etc. If we shift from our main functioning into the alternative functioning, then shift back to the main functioning, it seems as if we've been there before. Well, we have two minutes ago, five seconds ago. Our mind just wanders. The, a lot of psychological work has gone on in terms of people being totally present with what they're doing at the moment. 80% of the time they're not. You know, the only thing where they're present more than 80% of the time, I mean more than 50% of the time, sex. while they're having sex. Yeah. <laughs> that is the one thing where they're totally present more than anything else. So I wonder if people yes. ever have a feeling of deja vu when they're having sex. Yeah, so the uh, back to deja vu, Vernon Neppe is a friend of mine in Seattle. You could do a podcast with him if you're ever in Seattle. He's written an entire book on deja vu. And he has the paper, I think. Open that middle drawer. Yeah, lots of lots of paper. There's a notepad right there, a small one, I'll listen to it. Mm -hmm. Vernon Nepi, N-E-P-P-E, -E, is the psychi psychiatrist I met in South Africa. And during the days of apartheid. And he started to send his books to the United States. And then he told the officials, he and his wife were leaving on a vacation. They left South Africa on vacation, never came back. This was during the apartheid days. He's now in Seattle. He has a very successful private practice in treating people with neurological disorders. And he's a brilliant theoretician and practitioner and he has what he considers the most complete theory of everything. And it, but back to deja vu, uh, there are several types of deja vu and one type talks about is a person had a dream about the future, but forgot it. So they actually 
do that experience in waking life, yes, I've been there before because they dreamed about it. So that's also an esoteric explanation, but much more easily comprehended than past life. The Let's see what else I can think of off the top of my head. Also, we have another number of experiences that are very similar to earlier experiences. And so just the fact of similarity uh, makes us think that we've been there before. Add that to one of the overriding principles of human cognition people like to make sense of their life. And sometimes, if they're doing something new or something strange, to make sense of it, instead of working on the basis of creativity and innovation, oh yes, I've done this before, I know how to handle this. So they attribute it to something that's more comprehensible to them. But deja vu is very common, and again, my main explanation is simply in terms of uh, the vagaries of human attention. Good. I don't really know enough about it to do a podcast on it, but well, I, I could prepare a podcast, but I can't do one. it right now. No, the phone's recording. Um, so we have we have uh, what are these called? Cue cards. Can you read that? Okay, that that's a good one. Mm -hmm. That's good. What is that? So what what's mm -hmm. your answer to that? Yes. Because I'm recording with the phone. <coughs> Read the question aloud and then answer. Yeah, so uh, whatever you feel. What what paranormal, what paranormal phenomena are you most convinced of? In the first place, I dismay some of my friends when I say this, but I have to say that I'm not really one hundred percent convinced of anything. I have enough skepticism to constantly be doubtful, even of long-cherished beliefs, always open to new evidence, always willing to revise my worldview if the evidence points in the other direction. Because there are so many categories of paranormal phenomena, I would say that what falls under the heading of remote viewing would be the phenomenon that I'm most convinced of. And remote viewing, or remote sensing is sometimes called, and also clairvoyance as it's often called, is simply knowledge of some event that cannot be explained in terms of your ordinary senses. So, when somebody has a 
strange feeling in their gut of imminent tragedy to a loved one and if it turns out that the loved one was an automobile crash at that exact moment that's pretty much of an evidence of remote viewing to me or remote sensing and again there are numerous cases these can always be chalked off to coincidence poor memory confabulation but i think there's enough evidence of them standing on their own once all the other explanations have been dismissed that there's something here that's worth investigating that there are connections between people and other people between other people distant events or people in not so distant events as you do in an experiment if you're trying to identify the contents of a sealed envelope. Now, you might ask what paranormal phenomena I'm least convinced of? Perhaps past life memories. Mm. Because I think that a lot of past life memories can be explained in terms of remote viewing. Somebody has an impression of what somebody was doing a hundred years ago because that is on record and for some reason or another they have an emotional connection with that event and they say well for me to remember that so clearly that must have been me I must have done that in a past life. Mm. So technically this is called post-cognition not pre-cognition which is knowledge about the future but post-cognition knowledge of a past event and why does it remember some past events and not others? I think emotion plays a role. Something is happening in our life that emotionally was congruent with something that happened in another person's life many, many years ago. And this constellation creates some sort of a match. Of course, this is all pure speculation, and I'm not offering it as a well-founded theory but I think that that's a pretty good answer to your question on either side of the uh, phenomena. Does homosexuality exist in all cultures? Obviously it cannot exist in a culture where there are, where there are incredible penalties for homosexuality, where somebody doesn't dare do anything with the same sex, or they would be executed or killed or exiled. So it's there latently, but certainly not actualized. I think that the tendency is there, and I think that the fact that throughout human history, you have so many reports cross-culturally, certainly attests to its universality. And to me, it's one of the varieties of human inheritance and human experience. Also, There is an interesting speculation, going back to Darwin, that I've just read about recently. Darwin, of course, is best known for natural selection and how one survives in terms of adaptive traits. 
Well, once somebody survives, there's another selection that comes into the picture. I wish I had the book in front of me right now. And that's aesthetic selection. Once people know they're going to survive, they make choices on the basis of beauty or aesthetics. And this accounts to a large degree for mate selection. Yes, men want, and you're familiar with this, of course, much better than I am, men want a woman who will bear children and who will pass on the genes. Women want men who not only will provide for them, but will be a good uh, mate. And so, in addition to those basics of the so-called standard point of view, you have aesthetic selection. Men want a sexual partner who is beautiful, who's fun to be with. Same with women. And just take that one step further. What happens if a woman runs into a woman who's far more beautiful than the men around her? Well, that's aesthetic selection gone haywire. It no longer needs reproduction or survival. That's art for the sake of art, beauty for the sake of beauty. And I think that, so I think that uh, same-sex attraction is really hardwired more in some people than in others, more in some cultures than others. Mm -hmm. And of course there are literally dozens of explanations from a genetic point of view on homosexuality as well as a cultural point of view. It's the genetic, genetic point of view, of course, which is most interesting to me. Mm. What do I think about astrology? Let's just say I have a number of friends who make their living through astrology and it's something we really don't bring up in great detail because of my skepticism, but I think that they probably do a good job, as you well know, if somebody thinks that something's going to help them, and if they're given a roadmap of something that's going to be helpful, it more than likely will be helpful. Marcello Truzzi, the late sociologist friend of mine, actually was on a round table with myself on astrology, and he's a super skeptic, and he really surprised everybody by saying, well, you know, I don't object to astrologers because they take great care in preparing for their clients, and they provide pretty common sense advice. They probably spend more time with their clients than most psychotherapists do. They might even be less doctrinaire than a lot of psychotherapists. So the psych astrologers I've met do a pretty good job of what they're doing. So, having said that, let me point out some of the problems that I see with astrology. Uh, first of all, there are several types of astrology. Chinese astrology, Ayurvedic astrology, very, very different than Western astrology. And from a simple common sense point of view, they can't all be right. And nobody's really done a cross-cultural combination in terms of seeing which chart really is the most accurate. Secondly, the constellations that were in the sky at the time of the ancient Greeks, in which the astrology archetypes developed, have shifted one whole point. So where Libra was 
couple of thousand years ago is not where Libra is now. Where Scorpio was back in those days, not where Scorpio is now. In fact, there's an entire book written on contemporary astrology and what the new planetary alignments should be telling you about yourself. That is nicely overlooked by most astrologers I know. Okay, the third point of view, important, is that if people have some knowledge of what their sign is, it's easier for them to buy into that. I did a little experiment many, many years ago, and it's been published, and people could refer to it if they want. What we did was to take about a dozen people who knew their astrological sign, a dozen people who knew nothing about astrology. All of them had their charts charted by a, the same astrologer, and then they were asked to match their chart against all of the other charts. For one group, it would be matching their chart with 12 other charts. For the skeptical, I mean, in the uninformed group, 12 charts. So they had one out of 12 chances that they would get the right one. What happened is, the ones who knew nothing about astrology, complete chance. No direct hits at all. The ones who knew about astrology, yeah, there were some direct hits. They were not statistically significant, but they did much better than the people who knew nothing about astrology. So they took what they knew about their sign and matched it to what the astrologer said, and some of them came up with a pretty good match. So, where does that leave us? I would say that, oh, I should mention one other thing. This is very important. Uh, Richard Harness is written one of the most important books on Western history called The Passion of the Western Mind. He's a Saybrook graduate, by the way. And The Passion of the Western Mind is really one of the best syntheses of Western civilization I've seen. I recommend it left and right. He'd be a good podcaster. He has come up with another book on uh, astrology and astrology in human history. And what can I say? It is a brilliant book if you accept his assumptions. If you don't accept his assumptions, it doesn't make too much sense. However, Stan Groff loves the book, and he has included that book in his new encyclopedia. I have advanced copies of his new encyclopedia here, which I'll be happy to show you in a few minutes, but this is a compendium of all of his research over the past decades. It's really a masterpiece. And he includes Richard Tarnas's work on astrology, which really was a surprise, but he thinks that highly of it. The one opening that I see for astrology making sense is an astrologer who I knew briefly while he was alive, Dane Rudyard, archetypal astrology. Yes, the archetypes of astrology, that whether it be Chinese, Ayurvedic, or Western astrology, these are archetypes. They've been around for thousands of years, and like other archetypes, they're a pattern. 
they're a pattern that over the centuries and over the millennia has become hardwired into human brains and biology. They're there, like the so-called Great Earth Mother or the Great Earth Father, uh, like the magical child archetype, like the trickster archetype. They're there, they're part of inheritance. So whether they match the heavens constellations or not is beside the point. These are no basic archetypes that people can latch onto that might have some effect upon their behavior. Now, because I think that the concept of archetypes makes sense, I think that archetypal astrology might make a little bit of sense. Do you think time is more complex than now? We norm oh, it certainly is. Time is extremely complex. The brief history of time shows you how complex it is from the physics point of view. And different cultures experience time differently. Time differs depending on what part of the universe we're in psychologically a difference in terms of what frame of mind we're in. I've read several books on time and they all show the complexity of it. Of course time is very important in terms of parapsychology when we have some sort of precognitive event taking place where we actually predict something that's going to happen in the future. And from the point of view of the what American Indians call the long body it's not really the future, it's something that's part of the present. It's just the extreme limit of the present. So it's not future at all, it's part of what's going on right now. Gardner Murphy, the esteemed psychologist, the parapsychologist, once wrote, we won't understand parapsychology until we understand time. And I think he's right. The practical use that I find about time and time dimensions is Philip Zimbardo's books about time. And the therapy, time perspective therapy, that one of my Saybrook students, Richard Sword, worked out with Zimbardo and Sword's wife, Rosemary Sword, for post-traumatic stress disorder. And in terms of the statistics, it's the most effective treatment for PTSD. They have a brief test that they give the PTSD survivor in terms of different time dimensions and they find out if people are hooked to a past, a present, or a future. If they're more involved in the past, is it a happy past or is it an unhappy past? If they're hooked to the present, is it a pessimistic present or is it an optimistic present? They're hooked to the future, same thing. A foreboding future or an optimistic future. People who have PTSD, pessimistic all the way down. Their memories about the past, about the traumatic events, all unpleasant. And they keep trying to inject some positivity in them, they just can't. They're locked into the past. So, what the therapy consists of is going back and reconstructing the past. 
finding happy things that happened in the past, repeating the happy things, giving attention to the happy things until they drown out the unhappy things, and then projecting that into the present. What are the happy things that are happening in the present? Live those, actualize those over the unhappy things, and then projecting in the future. Let's come up with an optimistic future, not a pessimistic future. And then if you believe in a future life, think in terms of the happiness in the future life rather than a hell or a pessimistic future life. So this is a type of therapy that has several very carefully constructed exercises, can be done in groups, can even be done with a person with very, very minimal therapeutic training because it is so carefully constructed. And so here's a very practical application of the psychological differences in terms of time that really makes sense. You consider yourself to be a spiritual person? This is a good point to point out, a good way to point out there's a difference between spirituality and religiosity. I have a student in the UK who's struggling with this right now. I've given her a lot of literature on the topic. Because in the United States, every, every year when the, uh, when the polls are taken, more and more people identify as spiritual but not religious. Mm -hmm. Some people identify as both spiritual and religious. Some people identify as religious but not spiritual, very few. Some people identify neither religious or spiritual, very few. So the future seems to be in the hands of the people who are both spiritual and religious, are spiritual and not religious. Now, what's the difference? Remember that religion is an organized system. To be religious, you adhere to a certain dogma, for better or for worse, a certain body of beliefs, a certain group of believers, certain commandments, things to do, things not to do. And so you're sort of locked in to that, to that code of ethics and that belief system. Well, that can be reassuring to somebody. Religions have the answer to everything. If you have a question, what, are, what does the Bible tell you? What does the Quran tell you? What does the Talmud tell you? What does the, what does Buddha, the Buddha Sutras tell you? And you just go back to that. Now, thankfully, there are a few religions that emphasize critical thinking. I'm a member of the First Humanist Church of New York, which is affiliated with the Unitarian Universalist Church. And there are a lot of emphasis put on critical thinking. I talked about this with my parents to a great extent. And when my parents are asked what religion I belong to, and they said, well, he likes the Unitarians. You can believe whatever you want to believe. I thought, well, good for her. She got the message loud and clear. The Humanist Church in New York, the pastor has just turned 100 years of age this year, Reverend Jacob Ben David. I was uh, very fortunate to have dinner with him the last time I was in New York, an incredible person with a breadth of knowledge and of course, both spiritual and religious. So getting back to these polls I was talking about, fewer and fewer people are joining the mainstream religions and unfortunately, 
you don't see an increase in the more, shall we say, progressive religions, like the Unitary Universalists, or even the Congregationalists in the First Church of Christ, which had the Episcopalians who were the first to advocate uh, marriage equality. And unfortunately, in my point of view, people are more attracted to the more hard-line conservative religions, and that's contributed to the cultural wars we have in the United States. So, then how do you find spiritual? All right, spiritual, you find great value in the human spirit. The positive side of human experience, creativity, art, beauty, altruism, compassion, uh, being kind to one's neighbor, working for worthwhile social betterment, um, respecting other people's points of view. Yes, those are all spiritual. Yes, there are some religions that honor those also. Not enough, but there are some. And individuals who are in religions can sometimes do that on their own. But my student in the UK is now trying to define spirituality in a way that it can be tested out and contrasted to uh, religion and so that there is a more organized way of looking at these two concepts. Very worthwhile project, especially in terms of the people we now call the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, would ask what religious denomination you belong to, and they say none. That number is increasing. This is a great cultural change. We'd better be ready for it. What have you concluded about human nature? First of all, I think that my conclusion is open system. I'm constantly learning things, revising and changing things. But I have to say I keep going back to Darwin. There's always something to be learned in reading Darwin and rereading Darwin and in reading interpretations of Darwin. And the fact that Darwin is still controversial in public schools is and especially in private schools, I think is a great tragedy. I think that uh, Darwinian theory, in all of its variations, is certainly a good guide for, uh, for human nature. And you find a good explanation for the contradictions of Darwin. On the one hand, human cooperation is essential to human survival. And Darwin emphasized the importance of cooperation even mentioned the word love in some of his writings. And I think that at the same time that cooperation is important, he also talked about physical survival. People had to be militant. They had to fight against enemies, not only enemies from the wild beasts that were around, but actual human enemies. So this is sort of a paradox. People have to be able to cooperate, but then people have to be able to fight to protect what they've gotten. One of the great paradoxes, and we see that acting out today in the confrontation with policemen and their black victims of unwanted aggression. Take a look at the policemen who are locked into the survival trait of defending themselves against unknown dark forces and they see a dark black man 
coming at them with what they perceive to be a weapon, their reflex is to shoot to protect themselves. Obviously, this is not the rational way to approach things. It leads to great tragedy on both parts, but this is the way, it, it's an offshoot of human nature. And look at the black people who are victims. The sensible thing for them to do is to give up, not to fight back, not to run away. But they've been conditioned in terms of natural selection to fight or flight. So if they run away, they're doomed. If they fight, they're doomed. Their best option would be to freeze. Fight, flight, or freeze. Very few people freeze. That would be the best option. So evolution is playing itself out today and is a good explanation for what we see in the vagaries of human nature. Do you think there are holes in evolutionary theory? Well, there probably are. I'm not as much as an expert uh, to make comments on them. I'm certainly not an expert to criticize people like Darwin and some of the people who come after him. I would, I would say what might be of more interest to me is a hole in evolutionary psychology which I'm very much interested in. I follow evolutionary psychology very closely. And I, I do think I can point out a hole there. I think that one of the great names in evolutionary psychology is David Booth, who's written one of the texts on evolutionary psychology. And we were on a panel discussion a few years ago at the American Psychological Association, and it's almost as if he were defending uh, a man's right to be jealous or a woman's right to be envious because these used to serve evolutionary purposes. And I was making the point, yes, but there are some logical reasons now where we have to overcome those evolutionary trends in terms of what's going to help us survive in this day and age. He said, well, I wouldn't be so eager to discard them. So I think this is still a controversy in evolutionary psychology that we need to pay a little more attention to. What is there that evolutionary psychologists can give us in terms of help, not only to understand some of the dilemmas, but maybe to move beyond the dilemmas? You think synchronicities are worth paying attention to? Oh yes, absolutely. Of course, synchronicities are coincidences, but they're coincidences with a meaning. Carl Jung, of course, used the term. He didn't coin the term. You can find it in Aristotle. You can find it in early Greek philosophers. You can find it in St. Augustine. Uh, but he's the one that brought it to attention in the 20th century and now to the 21st century. And in synchronicity, if you take a look at the synchronicities, yes, there's meaning involved, but the meaning seems to me to always have an emotional link. Jung's famous example is his argument to Freud with Freud about synchronicities and about how when they were talking about Jung's patient who was uh, 
attracted to Scarab's ancient age. A beetle appeared out of nowhere. And Jung said to Freud, see, that's a synchronicity. We were talking about that. And Freud dismissed it. And Jung said, I'm going to predict there will be an explosion. I might not have this anecdote exactly correct. I think maybe the explosion came first. And then Jung said there will be another explosion in a few minutes, and there was. That was the correct interpretation. So there you have a synchronicity. First of all, the synchronicity of the beetle, which didn't happen with Freud and Jung. My mistake, maybe you could erase that on your tape version of this. And then when Freud challenged it, there was another explosion. Well, emotions involved in that. Also, the synchronicities in my life, there has been some emotion involved in. And I can think of one off the top of my head. I was in Chicago at an American Psychological Association convention with a friend of mine, and we were talking about the I Ching. And of course, the I Ching, the Chinese Book of Changes, is based on synchronicity. And as you know, there's a new translation of the I Ching that's come out. And I said, yes, I've heard about that. I would really like to have a copy of that. Five minutes later, my wife showed up for lunch, and she said, I have a surprise to you. And what was it? She gave me a copy of the new translation of the I Ching. Well, there you are. Coincidence? Yes, maybe. Well, certainly synchronicity, but there was that emotional connection again. And Alan Vaughn is a science writer who I worked with at Maimonides Dream Laboratory. He came up with a whole book about synchronicities and meaningful coincidences. It's always just for the bill. People are prone to say yes, but there are so many coincidences that happen every day. A few of them are bound to come true, which is very, very good way of logical thinking. Except some of the synchronicities are so exact they really are mind-boggling in terms of thinking of all the pieces that have to fall together. And again, this goes back to your question on time. Time and the synchronicities are part of one complex package. And I keep hoping that maybe chaos theory will help us uh, understand this, because chaos theory is non-linear. Time does not happen always in a linear way, past, present, future. That explains a lot of things, doesn't explain everything. Things happen all at once. Past becomes present, present becomes future, future becomes past. You never just know uh, how things are going to work out. And from that point of view, synchronicity should be expected. Again, I'm not an expert on these things. I wish I could describe them in better detail. But uh, I think that given the little that we know about human nature, the little we know about time, Synchronicity is about to happen. What work of your own are you happiest with? Oh, that's a good question. I would say, first of all, I'm probably happiest with my friendships. I've had some incredible human relationships that have been very gratifying to me and to the other people involved. And I think that in terms of something that I'm happiest with, I certainly have to put that on the list. In terms of my professional work, 
I suspect that my most, my most important book will be the book that I co-edited with Cardania and Lynn, Varieties of Anomalous Experience. That book has had numerous citations, reverberations. We've done a revision of it. It's been translated into Portuguese. It's being cited left and right. It launched a whole flurry of studies of anomalies. It launched a AP Journal of the Psychology of Consciousness, which I'm one of the editorial board members of. And we worked very, very long and hard on that book, and I think it's really uh, been very influential and continues to be. And it has made the whole study of anomalies very respectable. My psychological career has really been devoted to the study of anomalies in one sense of the word or another. And it sort of all coalesced with that particular book. Now, of course, the anomalies research I'm most closely connected with is the dream research at Maimonides Medical Center, which we did for 10 years, and which was a very pioneering effort, and again, not on my part, Dr. Monty Ullman, uh, my great friend and mentor, who developed the concept, originated the dream laboratory, and for 10 years, that was the main focus of my investigation. And we actually, within those 10 years, came up with 10 major psychological studies, and then a number of side studies, a number of pilot studies. Now, just recently, the International Journal of Dream Research had a meta-analysis, a review of all of the psychic dream studies ever done over 50 years. Coincidentally, there were exactly 50 studies done. 10 of Maimonides, 50 of other, 40 other places. Believe it or not, our studies of Maimonides were replicated more often than not. They were replicated to such a high degree that you'd have to put a one with hundreds of zeros after it to compare it to the laws of chance. This is better than what you get in most mainstream psychological experiments. And this was a very, very thorough review. One of the things that they did was to take a look at the rigor of the experiments. Which experiments were most rigorous? I'm happy to say that some of the experiments that I designed at Maimonides were among those noted as most rigorous. Great compliment to me and a great surprise to me. I'm very happy with that. However, a lot of the critics of parapsychology say the more rigorous the design, the more likely it is that the psychic effects will disappear. No, that didn't happen. The more rigorous the design, the effects actually improved a little bit. Hmm. Not to a significant degree, but they certainly didn't disappear. So, somebody came up with a response, a psychologist came up to respond to that, and it's it, it's worthwhile reading because it's the best that the critics can do. Well, yes, but if you take those studies and you take out the pilot studies, why do you take out the pilot study? If those pilot studies are significant, there must have been other pilot studies that weren't significant. Well, that's accusing us of lying, of holding back the ones that were significant. Not only us, but the other people. Completely unfounded. If you take those out, 
Then you get a P not a point zero 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 one but point zero seven. Well let's face it, point zero seven is still pretty good. It's not point zero five significant, but it comes close. If that's the best that they could come up with accusing us of lying and cheating, then I think that the original article stands pretty firmly. What was something you used to believe in that you now think you were wrong about? Oh, that's easy. Many, many things. Many, many things. <laughs> I used to think, and I hate to say this, because I've had feminist sympathies for most of my life, but I used to think that a woman was not completely fulfilled unless she had a family. I discarded that early on in my college career but I just am embarrassed to think how long I held that belief. What really demolished that belief system was Betty Friedan, The Feminine Mystique. And that is one of the books that changed my life. I actually met Betty Friedan when I was in New York. She gave a lecture and I told her your book changed my life. And she said, yes, I've heard this a million times. I'm sure <laughs> she has. And so that is one belief that uh, I was wrong about. Now, what other beliefs was I wrong about? I have to say the beliefs I was not wrong about. I never believed that this was a just and equitable world. I never believed that things would work out for the best. I never believed that good is always rewarded. I never believed that bad is always punished. Thank heavens, I never had any of those illusions. I I think that I had more faith in the American system of justice than I do now. I still feel that the Constitution and the Bill of Rights are well put together, very well structured. The amendments, as they now stand, are well structured. I think that is the core of what is left of American democracy, and I'm very, very proud of that. I think I've lost faith in the ability of Americans to follow that up and follow through. I'll tell you that some of the things that are really abhorrent to me taking down the statue of George Washington because he had slaves? Ridiculous! They're doing that in the name of racism and of course I'm certainly not a racist. I've been on the forefront of racial equality really all of my life. Ridiculous! People who are uh, who are trying to abolish the separation of church and state by putting Bible-based curriculum of the public schools? Ridiculous. That's horrible. And trying to find ways to weaken the separation of church and state? That really dismays me. The energy and money that's being put into that. The I, Both extremes, both extremes are really dismaying and all the energy that's being put into this. The Even worthwhile causes are being, com being compromised. Black Lives Matter, which I admire in principle, 
That is enlisting people who are anti-Semitic. This is terrible. Those people should not be a part of Black Lives Matter. So, I'm looking at the landscape today, looking at the presidential choices today, which I won't comment on further, it's uh, uh, really disheartening to me. Who is the most impressive, famous person you've met? Oh my God, so many of them, so many of them. Well, certainly Albert Hoffman, the man who discovered LSE. If there was a saint in my life, he'd be the most saintly on so many, so many bases in terms of his wisdom, his closeness of nature, his philosophy of life, his kindness, his creativity. Just, uh, just magnificent person. Frank Lloyd Wright, who I didn't know personally, but who I met on two different occasions and know his life story very well. Yes, genius, creative, uh, pioneer, iconoclast, just absolutely incredible. Um, I think that uh, I think there are just so many. I'm I'm almost ashamed to draw favorites. I am a great admirer of Laura Huxley, and spent considerable time with her. And of course, she was the second wife of Aldous Huxley, a brilliant and pioneering person in her own right working on behalf of children, working on behalf of the human potential movement. I was very lucky to be at her 80th birthday party, celebrities from all over the world attending, spent time with her privately and publicly. Uh, it's, and then Martin Luther King, who I actually spent an hour and a half with taking him on a tour of the Northwest University campus. King, like all of us, had his blemishes. Many people fail to admit that he was not a perfect person. He had his flaws. Yes, he did. But sometimes one's flaws are outweighed by one's vision. His vision, not only in terms of desegregation, but in terms of uh, the Vietnam War, which he was caught on quickly to oppose, uh, certainly makes up for his blemishes. Um, I can, I can stop there, but I think that gives you the flavor. Why do you think power and power roles are so prevalent within sexual relationships? This is just the nature of things, the way things are. <laughs> That's evolution for you. I think that... I think that most people don't pay enough attention to the power and the role that power plays in his life. I became aware of this. When I was an undergraduate at the University of Wisconsin studying political science and we read a book by Hans Margenthau on power in, in international relations. Margenthau I later actually got to meet. He came to give a lecture. I mean he was one of the early opponents of the Vietnam War. So much, so far ahead of his time, so right on in terms of seeing how power works its way, for better or worse, into politics, into international relationships, and into personal relationships. Not only sexual and romantic, in terms of friendships, in terms of uh, relationships between students and professors. And power, of course, has a sexual basis, 
It also has its basis in terms of enemy, and of course in terms of survival. Look at what I just said about Darwin, in terms of cooperation. Power is distributed in terms of cooperation. Look at terms of conflict. Power is not distributed in terms of conflict. You're telling me you've got to pay more attention to the power, to the to power the beggars of power. Do you have any thoughts of what happens after death? Well, yes, I do. I think that we have considerable evidence that something happens after death. Just what I'm not sure. I think that. Uh, I think that my attitude is if I live my life fully and with demonstrating my belief in love and friendship and constructive creativity, they'll be well prepared and also critical thinking. I'll also be well prepared for what happens after death. And I'm quite familiar with the evidence that parapsychologists have amassed. I have to say that I don't think the critics have done an adequate job of destroying all of the evidence. They've certainly done a good job of destroying some of the weak evidence. But look at the experiment that I did with the uh, dreams of soldiers killed in Afghanistan and Iraq. About three years ago, a woman approached me by email because she was having dreams about soldiers who were killed in Afghanistan and Iraq. And she wrote me because she thought I was one of the few people that understand. She worked with an army chaplain who was Native American and she would bring him the names of these people and their identification, he would say, yes, I knew that person when I was on service in the Middle East. And over the course of the year, we collected 10 specific dreams. And each one of those dreams had enough identifying information that they could identify the man who was killed. Some of them, they had to go to the army records but in each case, there was some relationship with the army chaplain, either direct relationship or a tangential relationship. And she asked, why are you coming to me in my dreams? I say, we want people to know that there's life after death. Now this presented a moral problem. Should she contact their parents? That would be too risky. They've made their peace with their son's death. They probably are members of mainstream religious organizations that would think that this is all uh, satanic or diabolical so what's the use of doing that I said look we'll just take this to the outside world I'll publish an article in the Journal of the Society for Psychic Research so it's on record now in the article I said look we have to face it this is too exact to be coincidence it can't be coincidence it can't be attributed to loss of memory because she writes down the dream, she tells us of the chapel immediately after the dream. The only other logical explanation is fraud. That she and the chaplain are doing this as sort of a game to put one over on the experts. Now, maybe it's fraud. I can't deny that. But 
She arranged to see me at the meeting I went to in Virginia, she and the chaplain both. She got there a day after I had left, but she and the chaplain met friends of mine, and they talked about this as friends of mine. So this put them on record. Well, maybe they thought they would hoodwink the others also. But also this man is a chaplain. If he was caught perpetrating fraud like this, his career would be over. And after the ten dreams were recorded, he was shifted off to Korea. So that's when the dreams ended. So again, I cannot, again, remember I'm not convinced of anything 100%. All that I can say is that I, I think there's a reasonable possibility that something happens after death. And I follow the research I, as closely as I can. The one thing that I am quite aware of is it really doesn't follow the dictates of any of the organized religions. That really, they don't really seem to have a map that fits the territory. Any core lessons you've learned that you would pass on to young people? Well, I made so many mistakes in my life that I hesitate to give advice to others, but you put me on the spot so I'll do my best to answer this and one piece of advice I would have is you can't be honest to everybody but you can be honest to yourself honesty is not always the best policy I've had to lie to protect people's feelings to protect people's reputations I have to say, to the best of my knowledge, I haven't lied about myself. I think I've been pretty honest about myself. But I have lied to save other people. So honesty is not always the best policy. Honesty is something very, very important. And like other important things, you have to be very careful how you distribute it and how you carry it out. I think being honest with oneself is the most important role that honesty plays. Ah, also, I think it's obvious that love is extremely important. That we talked about love and power. I think that at its basis, love is not possessiveness. I think that when possessiveness comes into a relationship, that relationship is in trouble. Or if it does survive, it's not going to be the deepest part of love that one would expect. I think that if somebody is deeply involved in a love relationship, whether it's a romantic relationship, a friendship relationship, a family relationship, that there has to be a certain degree of unselfishness involved. I think the there are exceptions. There are certain times when a parent has to step in and protect a child against doing something seriously wrong. Even if the child does not speak to the parent for months or years afterward, sometimes a parent has to do this. And let's hope the parent is right. Sometimes with a love relationship, sometimes a love partner is going to do something disastrous. The other partner has to step in and protect the person from doing that disaster. And let's hope the person is correct, but sometimes power has to come in to save the life of a person. You have to use your discrimination. That's why critical thinking is important. 
That's why I've emphasized critical thinking so often in our discussion. I think that forgiveness is important. This is one thing I learned from the spiritual text of Course in Miracles. Don't carry a grudge. If you can forgive something, forgive people, forgive yourself, this takes a lot of burden off you. You know, Albert Ellis and Carl Rogers are both friends of mine. They were both influential psychotherapists. They came from various opposite points of view in terms of psychotherapy, but they all agreed on one thing. Self-acceptance. Acceptance of others. Acceptance of life. Now, you start off with acceptance of self. Yes, if you're honest with yourself, and if you've done some terrible things, like I certainly have, you've got to forgive yourself, accept it. Maybe you can learn something from that. And then there's acceptance of others. You might not be able to forgive the other person so easily, but you keep working on it, at least the first one, accept them. Maybe there was a reason for what they did. If they were mean and nasty to their children, maybe their children, maybe as children, their parents were mean and nasty to them. There must be a reason that they've been so mean and nasty and hateful. So accept that. Now, you don't have to hang out with them. And as I say, you don't have to fall in love with them. You can break off your relationship. But don't carry a grudge. That's the way they are. Accept that. And then third, accept life. Like I say, for me, no, life is not fair. Life is not just. You do the best you can. Like a Candide, both in the musical and in Voltaire's text. We make our gardens grow. Love is neither just nor fair nor good. We do the best we know. Make our gardens... Yes, make our gardens grow. Do the simple things. Do them well. And so accepting life with all of its unfairness, all of its injustices, takes resentment away. I think that... I used to be resentful against a lot of people. No, that's gone. Too much of a burden. So... Accept yourself, forgive yourself, accept others, forgive others, accept life, forgive any qualities in life. I think that's something I could advise passing on to younger people. Thank you and I love you too. <laughs>